Some of the things that I see in other languages where I'm like, if I was to use Go, I might miss this is like, I like the idea that like four is the only way to loop, but like I also love all of the FP functions for like iteration and map and reduce and select and filter. And for me, those are very productive ways of pipelining data. And I'm wondering, maybe those are available as like libraries or anything. It seems like I would miss those things. Do you guys ever miss those things? I'm sure you're familiar with them in other languages. I miss iteration, like iterators all the time. I find myself building them a lot. And that's one of the, with generics, I'm hoping that we do kind of settle on a reasonable like iteration, maybe not interface, but yeah, way of doing it. But I do miss that. Okay. I think I miss that too, but I think I've also just hand rolled it enough times that I'm just like, nah. This episode is brought to you by Sourcegraph. Sourcegraph is universal code search to let you move fast, even in big code bases. Here's CTO and co-founder Byung Lu explaining how Sourcegraph helps you to get into that ideal state of flow in coding. The ideal state of software development is really being in that state of flow. It's that state where all the relevant context and information that you need to build whatever feature or bug that you're focused on uh, building or fixing at the moment, that's all readily available. Now the question is, how do you get into that state where you know you don't know anything about the code necessarily that you're going to modify? That's where Sourcegraph comes in. And so what you do with Sourcegraph is you, you jump into Sourcegraph, it provides a single uh, portal into that universal code. You search for the string literal, the pattern, whatever it is you're looking for, you dive right into the, the specific part of code that you want to understand. And then you have all these code navigation capabilities, jump to definition, find references that work across repository boundaries that work without having to clone the code to your local machine and set up and mess around with editor config and, and all that. Everything is just designed to be seamless and to aid in that task of you know code spelunking or, or source diving. And once you've acquired that understanding, then you can hop back in your editor, dive right back into that flow state of, hey, all the information I need is readily accessible. Let me just focus on writing the code that implements the feature or fixes the bug that I'm working on. All right, learn more at sourcegraph.com and also check out their bi-monthly virtual series called DevTool Time covering all things dev tools at sourcegraph.com slash dev tool time. Let's do it. It's go time. Welcome to Go Time, your source for diverse discussions from around the Go community. We record live on Tuesdays at 3 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time. Subscribe at youtube.com slash changelog so you don't miss it. And don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at GoTimeFM. Special thanks to our partners at Fastly for shipping our shows super fast to wherever you listen. Check them out at Fastly.com. Okay, here we go. Hello and welcome to Go Time. I'm Matt Ryer, and I've spent my entire life working on my mid-American English accent for this very moment when I could imitate Jared Santa. No, I'm not Matt Ryer. Matt is, I don't know where, but I am here. I'm Jared, your humble producer, coming out from behind... Where does an audio producer sit behind? I don't know. The, the soundboard, maybe? I yes, from behind your soundboard to ask some questions today. If you listen to our charm episode of the changelog, which we aired in the Go Time feed because there was so much Go talk on that episode, you know that I've been Go curious as of late, but I have my apprehensions. I have my questions. I haven't actually dug very far into Go. And I have questions. So I thought I'd bring a few friends together and ask all sorts of newbie, outsidery, shallowy questions. So joining me today is Go Time regular Chris Brando. What's up, Chris? Oh, hey, doing pretty well. On for the second time this year. This this first quarter has like flown by so quickly. It was like you're back, baby. You're back. Yeah. Can't believe it's like March or I guess April by the time this episode comes out. Yeah, Q1 has come and gone, and here we are, Q2. But what else is going to happen, right? Every day, another Q goes by. Yeah. That sentence didn't even make sense. <laughs> Let's introduce Ian Lopshire. I'm doing my best Matt Ryer impersonation with the non sequiturs. So that's every time I say something silly or dumb, just assume it was a Matt Ryer impression. We have Ian Lopshire, a guest, but a common guest. Welcome back to Go Time, Ian. Yeah, happy to be here. 
and I'm kind of reeling right now because I hadn't thought that Q2 was over yet, but <laughs> just looked at that date and no, you're right. Q2 isn't over. Q1 is almost over. Oh, yeah, my bad. Q1, yeah. But still, <laughs> the quarter is almost over. I confused him by saying every day a Q2 goes by. <laughs> Q85. Yeah, settle down, Ian. Settle down. You don't have to freak out that but much. Q1 is almost over. And that's uh, that's scary. But here we are. But here we are. And it's go time. So before we get into my questions, I've also gathered a few questions from GoTime audience and Twitter folks about what they're curious about the Go programming language. I wonder from each of you, maybe don't go deep. Don't tell us about your birth and stuff, but like getting into Go and kind of the language that you came from or the ecosystem you came from when you got into Go and maybe what were some of your trepidations or things that you were curious about prior to being like a go time, a, a full time gopher, a go time gopher also, but just writing go on a regular basis. Ian, you're our guest. Let's start with you. Tell us a little bit about your origin with go. Yeah. So pre go, I was writing mostly PHP and JavaScript and uh, the company I actually worked for at the time kind of decided they wanted to go with more compiled languages. So we had like a choice of C sharp or go and uh, my team went with go. And I think the first like kind of questions and issues I had when I started was around one, like how to structure things, like where does everything go in one file? Do I make a thousand packages? Kind of that bit. And the second one was a lot around like JSON and deserialization, the IO readers, like coming from JavaScript and stuff. That was very confusing for that first like couple weeks. Cool. Chris, how about you? I think you hit on a couple things actually that are in my list. So I'm right there with you. Chris, go ahead. So interestingly, when I started my career, I almost started it with Go. I kind of looked at it, got really confused actually by the colon equals syntax and ran away. Also in my list. Okay, keep going. So I, I started with PHP. And then uh, funny little thing about me and Sam Boyer, we both lived in the Drupal community for a while. And uh, I went to a meetup where I met him once and we were talking and I was like, there's something I don't like about PHP. And he was like, complexity, you should try Go. It's all about simplicity. And that is how I started off looking into Go. And then I just kind of went from there. And I actually convinced a company I was working at to let me build projects in Go. And I guess the first things that I kind of ran into were like, I was so excited about concurrency. I started putting channels and Go routines everywhere and quickly learned how terrible of an idea that is. But then kind of stuck with the language for that simplicity. Yeah. Very cool. So to give a little bit of my background, so I started off in Perl back in the early 2000s, went from Perl to Ruby. Also learned a little bit of C, but just enough to be dangerous and never actually worked daily in C. Did Ruby for many years, added JavaScript, of course, because I've been in web development most of my life. From there, started writing Elixir. I've written Elixir quite a bit over the last six, seven years. That's probably my primary language, plus JavaScript, because again, web development. And my experience with Go has been two small programs. Back when I did client work, I had a client who needed one endpoint and they needed it to be really fast. And it was just like a JSON endpoint that took like a few arguments and spit out different responses. I can't remember the exact thing. And Go was just like pre 1.0. Go was very new. And I always, I like the new shiny stuff. So I gave it a go back then and wrote that endpoint in Go. And it was probably like, 80 to 100 lines of code, worked great. Thought it was really cool and never had another use case for a long time because everything from there was like Ruby on Rails apps was like the primary thing I was doing. So picked it up and dropped it then. And then recently, you know, the Go Panic game show and the, what's the other one called? So on JS Party, we call it Front End Feud. Gophers Say, that's what we call it. Gophers Say has that that in-browser UI with the scores and the faces and all the questions and these things. And uh, that was like static HTML for a while. Well, eventually I wanted the same thing to drive the JS party side and the go time side with different stuff. Anyways, I wrote a little go web server. That's again, probably around a hundred lines. And this was like last fall, uh, picked it up, had a pretty good time with that. And so I've written probably like 200 lines of go. So I'm not completely noob, right? Like, but almost completely noob. But I'm very interested in it because I'm interested in building a changelog command line for fun and for interest. And I think it's a great language for that reason, for distributing of command line applications. It seems like it's simple, 
for that purpose with universal binaries and deployment and stuff, not having to have shared libraries everywhere. So that's why I'm curious about it. Also, just producing GoTime for many years, I know a lot about it kind of at a very shallow level, which makes it less intimidating than other languages like you know Rust, for example, which I know there's a lot of interest in that and a lot of comparisons and a lot of kind of verticals that both languages play in. So it would be another contender. But I'm very interested in Go. That being said, there's stuff in Go or as a person who hasn't really written much of it, I'm just like, I don't get it or why. A lot of the questions are why. Why does it work this way? And the first one is slices and arrays. So arrays. In most other languages, it's like there's an array or a list or something. But Go has these two, and it's like one is like a subset. I don't even understand it that much. It seems like everybody uses slices all the time. Can you guys explain to me what's a slice, what's an array, why are they different, and when should I use each one? Sure. So for the first question there, what's a slice and what's an array? An array is a, I guess, fixed size group of data, I guess you could say that. I'm trying to like say it without saying the word array here right. or the word slice here. But it's uh, like an an Iterable is also a bad word, but it's kind of like to, <laughs> just like a slab of memory that you can have that's a fixed size. So you can have an array of like five integers or an array of 10 strings, but they are fixed size. So you can't add another string there. So you can't make that array that's of size 10 into an array of size 11. That's a different slab of memory that you would have to go get. Whereas slices are much like arrays in that you can have these kind of enumerations of things in them, but they are resizable. So you can go from a, a slice that is size 10 to a slice of size 11 by adding something to it. Uh-huh. So it's kind of like the base level of the difference between a slice and an array. You can also kind of think of it as like a slice is a like pointer to an array. And the programming language just does all of the magic for you when you need to get a larger array kind of just giving it to you and handling all of the copying of what was in the old array into the new array and all of that. Okay. So arrays sound more like what we used to do in C, where it's like you allocate, you, you pre-allocate slots or memory for a fixed length. And if you want to go beyond that, obviously you walk off the side of an array, now you're in overflow land and security problems. But you could then have a pointer to that. There's things that you can do in order to allocate new space and copy things over. Whereas a slice, I think I'm with you. Ian, do you want to amend or help anything Chris said? I mean, Chris pretty much covered it, but like, The way I think about it is a slice is like what an array should be. That's why it goes to my next question is why are there two separate data structures or I guess concepts? Are they just concepts or are they data structures? I don't know. They're different data structures. Okay. You never really see the underlying data structures of a slice. It's kind of opaque. Okay. Fair enough. They're different data structures. Why are there two? I mean, goes about simplicity. So like in JavaScript, there's an array and that's what you got. But in Go, there's two. Sort of. I would take a guess at this is probably uh, language lore, which someone can probably answer from our community out there. But I would say that they probably started with just arrays and then realized these aren't very friendly to use. But in the way that Go is simple, it has like tools that are purpose built for one job. When you need an array, you really need an array. You really want that fixed size things. You want the property of that fixed size thing. So they couldn't just make an array into a slice, really. I also assume that has something to do with typing in the language, Uh because when you have a slice and like the way that you add things to a slice, if you use this function called append and you kind of like put a slice in and you get a slice back out, but like the types of those slices need to match each other for that function to work. And I, I imagine it would have been more complicated to do that with arrays because in Go, in addition to like, you can't kind of resize an array arrays of different sizes are different types. So an array of five strings is a different type from an array of six strings. It's a different type from an array of seven strings. Whereas a slice of strings is a slice of strings, no matter how many, no matter the capacity of that slice, what it it actually is at the end of the day. Gotcha. So just use slices pretty much unless you know better. Yeah. For beginners, there's very few reasons why you would want to use an array. Array is definitely one of those like, advanced user tools. Okay. 
I think as a beginner, you come to it from a different language and you're like, what I need here is an array. And so, because that's what it's called elsewhere. And so then you go searching for arrays and then you find something that seems more complex, not complex, but lower level perhaps than what you're used to. And so then you're like, okay, slices. And then you start to wonder. We probably should have named it like array and static array. So whereas an array would be equivalent to what a slice is now and a static array would be what we have in an array now. I think slice in general is just not in other languages as a data structure. And so it's somewhat unique to go. Yeah. At least in my experience, where I'm coming from. See how I hedged that quite a bit at the end? <laughs> I was thinking, there's lots of languages out there, Jared. Maybe it's common elsewhere that I don't know. Okay. Let's stick with some syntax thing. So the equal sign and the colon equals thing. WTF? I don't know. Ian, let's let you go first on this one. The quick assignment, I think it exists so that you don't have to define the type of a variable. I mean, quick assignment, I can just say whatever this type I'm assigning to this is the type of this variable. Otherwise, you have to define a type. So I think it just adds some some expression. It really is. Is it syntax sugar then? I mean, it's... So that's the colon equals is the quick assignment. Do you want to add something to that, Chris? I really just think it's for ease of writing. So when the quick assignment, you do not have to explicitly declare the type of the variable. Yeah, it also, uh, it gives the language more of a feel of like a dynamically typed language as well, because there are some specific things in Go that are kind of type ambiguous until you say what the type is. Constant numbers are an example of this. They're this special like number type. And then like the language will eventually figure out what that type is when you kind of get more specific with it. So like by not declaring what the type is up front, you get a little bit more flexibility to kind of like decide what this thing is going to be at a later date, which you couldn't do if you had to kind of declare it right up front like you do with var and the regular equal sign. Okay. So coming from dynamic languages mostly, I would just want to use quick assignment all the time because I would always want to defer that until later, but I don't see it used all the time. So there are times where var or the equals, the non-quick, the slow assignment, is just preferable. Maybe you just know right up front, so you might as well declare it. Yeah, like you, I might be wrong about this, but I don't think you can use uh, the quick assignment outside of a, a function. So if you're just like in the global space, you have to use var. I think I hit that and I wondered why. And then also, if you only have, like if you're trying to assign something to a property of a struct, you can't use quick assignment. Even if you're doing multiple assignment, you have to use regular equals there. So you kind of have to declare the type. You have to use var and declare types for that. I would also say that sometimes, a lot of the time when I use, like don't use quick assignment, it's because I want the type there for documentation purposes. So leaning more into the, knowing the type of this upfront makes it easier for people to read and understand like, you know, oh, this is going to be this specific thing instead of something more ambiguous. Mm. I kind of think of it as creating the variable, then assigning it. So like if you're inside like a new scope, the quick assignment will shadow variables outside of that scope. So it's really like redefining the the variable and then assigning. Say that again in other words. I think I with you, but I want I want you to say it in other words. So say I have I'm writing a closure, right? Or I have something coming in. Right. If I do quick assignment inside of that, like the next scope, it's gonna shadow the variable. That was a horrible example. It's gonna overwrite what was outside of the closure. It's not going to overwrite it. It's going to define a new variable. And inside of that scope, you can only reference the new one. The new one. Oh, that's not good. I mean, it's desirable sometimes. But if you use the equal sign, it's going to set the value outside of the scope. Okay. When is shadowing a desirable? This might be tough because you might have to like have pre-thought of an example. But when would shadowing be desirable? To me, it sounds like just, just a, a cesspool for bugs. So <laughs> this is kind of a... a a weird case, but inside of a for loop, okay. sometimes you do want to shadow because the way the for loops work is it'll it'll save the the reference outside of the the loop. So as the loop goes through, you're gonna your variable is gonna change. But if you do a quick assignment inside of it, you can save the like copy the value into the new scope. Okay. Do you know how to say that better, Chris? I don't know how to say it without showing a picture. I think I tracked it, but yeah, Chris, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. It's it's basically like you know if you have a good variable name and you want to reuse it, but you don't want to affect things outside of the loop or the function okay. that you're using. That's a good way of saying it. So you're appealing to my desire not to think of another name now. You'll see I equals I a lot. Like I see. I equals colon equals. Yeah. I. Gotcha. 
this thing that I think a lot of new people run into when they first start using go routines and loops. If when you kind of get into the loop, you don't reassign the variable to something that is more locally scoped to that, and you try to use that inside the go routine, all of the go routines will basically see the last value of the loop instead of like, if you have like a loop that like has numbers one through 10 and you iterate through and start a bunch of go routines, all the go routines will see 10 as the value they're operating off of. Mm. If you don't reassign inside of that. Gotcha. Loop. So there are like some uses around of that. Um, this always burns me when I'm doing unit testing. Cause that's one of the areas where I start like using go routines and closures and it. I'm like, why isn't this working properly? It's like, Oh, right. I have to do this like T colon equals T sort of thing in order to like rescope or like redefine that variable within that iteration loop. So it gets the go routine properly. There are other ways to handle that as well that are a bit more explicit, but that's definitely where I think it gets right. shadowing is used the most often to like make it so that it's not a bug and actually something that's helpful for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it sounds like the implicit nature there seems like almost not a go way of doing things, but I understand it for some for I guess syntactic simplicity. But the implicit maybe it's an idiom that once you get into Go, you're just like Everybody knows, oh, this is a quick assignment, and so this is like purposeful shadowing kind of a thing, or vice versa. Is the quick assignment the shadower, or is the explicit assignment the shadower? A uh, quick assignment is, I mean, you could technically do shadowing with either, but the quick assignment is where people usually get tripped up. So when you guys who are like seasoned gophers see a quick assignment inside of a for loop, for instance, or maybe with closures, or no, with go routines, or you just immediately know what's going on there. You're like, oh, I know, because it's I and I or whatever. Why that's there? Yeah, like there's sometimes where it's just like, if I'm looking at some code and all of a sudden I see like, especially like in testing when it's T colon equals T, I'll be like, oh yeah, that has to be there. Whereas I think other newer people will be like, what's that doing? I don't understand. Right, right, right. So definitely when I see that. But that doesn't make us immune from shadowing bugs. Like I've written my fair amount of shadowing bugs where I've spent a lot of time debugging being like, why is this error nil? And it's like, oh, because I went into this different scope and I reassigned error. So in the larger scope, it's still nil. Yeah. That's happened to me too many times. Yeah, I think especially in error, and error handling, shadowing happens a lot and it's just part of the language really. Like just part of the language. Fair enough. So by the way, we have people in the GoTime FM chat uh, sounding off a little bit with some definitions and whatnot. So that's cool. Dylan Bork says, array is fixed size list of items. Slice is a pointer, air quotes, to some subset of an array. So a nice, simple explainer there. If y'all are looking up definitions or helping us out with examples, sometimes it's hard to think on your feet and we can have them uh, read off afterwards. If you're not hanging out in the GoTime FM channel, what is wrong? We're all hanging out in there. Live during the show, you can participate and be part of the fun. So hop into GoTime FM of the Gopher Slack during our shows. Okay, let's go on to a bigger question. These are kind of small uh, language things. What's the state of the art on dependency management? How do I use other people's code in the idiomatic best way today? Um, I, I, th- I know there's like a history here, so I'm not ignorant to any of the history, but I just want to know, like just starting today, if I'm going to start writing Go, what's the way that I should do it? I think if you're starting today, uh, 100% embrace modules and just use it. It works well, especially for new projects. Okay. Is that what everyone's doing? Yeah, modules is like the the way of, I guess, the future for, for right now. <laughs> the way of the future. Okay. So if you're like getting started with a brand new project, I mean, I use for all my new stuff, I use modules as well. So yeah, it's just like, okay, get some modules. You can still, the all of the commands are the same as they used to be. So you still use go get to get dependencies and all that sort of stuff. Right. But yeah, you know, when you open up a new folder, run go mod init with the name of the, the project, what you want to name your module or your project. And that, you can start just doing go get whatever to go download some stuff and off to the races. Okay. Well, that was an easy one. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Square. Millions of Square sellers use the Square app marketplace to discover and install apps they rely on daily to run their businesses. And the way you get your app there is by becoming a Square app partner 
Let me tell you how this works. As a Square app partner, you can offer and monetize your apps directly to Square sellers in the app marketplace to millions of sellers. You can leverage the Square platform to build robust e-commerce websites, smart payment integrations, and custom solutions for millions of businesses. And here's the best part. You get to keep 100% of revenue while you grow. Square collects a 0% cut from your sales for the first year or your first 100 Square referred sellers. That way you can focus on building and growing your Square customer base and you get to set your own pricing models. You also get a ton of support from Square. You get access to Square's technical team using Slack. You get insights into the performance of your app on the app marketplace. And of course, you get direct access to new product launches. And all this begins at changelog.com square. Again, changelog.com square. So I've said idiomatic go a couple of times. I know that's a, a term that perhaps is falling in or out of favor. The term idiomatic, I know I've, I've heard either unpopular opinions or maybe just conversations about like, let's not use that term. So whatever term you want to put in front of go, that means like kind of norm normative. I don't know, like the way people write code. Aside from using the formatter, which seems like obviously would normalize a bunch of code into some sort of idiomatic fashion that everybody thinks is good. What are some examples of common Go idioms or things that you should be doing that most gophers do? I don't know if you guys have like a pep or something like they do in Python, or it's like, is there the Go way or is it, you don't need it so much because there's kind of just one way. I think with looping, I kind of like the fact that there's really just one way. It's cool, but surely there's other ways of doing things. Do you guys have some examples of like, this is kind of a Go way of coding and this is... I've heard like writing Java in your Go or writing Ruby in your Go. What are some things that are quote unquote idiomatic Go? I think a, a lot of like the way that we name things, especially around capitalizations, like one of the big, big, big differences between Go and other languages is how ID is capitalized. So if you have something that's like an identifier, it's capital I, capital D. And that is like a very solid Go idiom. And I think the linters might yell at you now for that. If they don't, I hope they do. Oh, really? But yeah, like how you um, kind of capitalize initialisms and also like constants in Go aren't supposed to be all caps. They're supposed to just look like regular variables. So I guess like the, the idioms that always come to mind are, are, for me, are those sorts of things. Like how does Go look from that kind of mm -hmm. perspective? Obviously things also like we use camel case and not snake case. Sure. What about like globals? Do gophers like globals? I think globals are discouraged. I mean, we do have like the init function, so they're supported. I think they're discouraged in the community. <laughs> You're discouraging me from using them here. I, I would discourage you from <laughs> using globals, yes. I mean, of course there are times when you want to use globals. And it's it makes sense, but yeah, outside the main package, I would almost say don't use them. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. Like you can use them in main, and you're like all right. But certainly, if you have your own library, if you have like providing a library, you shouldn't use them, and certainly not use them if they're public. Like there's some cases for private globals, but public globals just get you into all sorts of messes. So okay, so one thing. Matt Ryer has told me a pattern that he observes is like his main function doesn't do very much. Like it's basically like calling the rest of his program. Is that a Matt Ryerism or is that like a go for a good idea? I mean, I wrote the programs I wrote main is basically the like everything's in there except for like my structs and some functions are outside, but they get called in there. But like it's the gist of things because it's a very simple program. But is that something that is discouraged? Like maybe like skinny main is kind of like an idiom, maybe. I think that is, there's different forms of this you see in the community. Like sometimes you see like it's literally one line in the main, right? And then the rest is in a different package. Mm -hmm. But I think the idea of keeping most of like any kind of business logic, any of that out of main is pretty ubiquitous in the community. I feel like it's maybe not an idiom. I feel like it's still somewhat contentious because okay. I hate this pattern. Like I really don't like this pattern <laughs> much at all. Here comes Chris now with the honesty. See how he eased into it and he's like, no, nah, I'm done easing. I hate this pattern. I get the intention of it, right? <laughs> we want to make everything testable, but I feel like that 
I feel like that kind of ignores a lot of the other other things that make it testable at the end of the day, right? Like ripping all of the guts out of the main function so you can put another function you can run and go test. It doesn't fix a problem with, say, environment variables, which are could still be kind of annoying or other globals that can sneak in at the end of the day. Mm. So I understand like the intent of saying, well, we should have this smaller main function that you can then go and like test more easily. But I think actually doing that misses the point a lot of the time. It like misses the thing that we're actually trying to tell people, which is like, don't use globals, write smaller functions, write smaller pieces that compose together better that you can test more easily. And I also think it discourages people from kind of running the whole binary and putting that under test and figuring out how to test the application as a whole, maybe outside of the Go testing library. It's kind of like a, a way of escaping around that and saying, well, I don't have to do this anymore because I can run all of my um, test functions on this like kind of pseudo main that I've created. Hmm. Ian, your response. So like the practice that I, I generally use is I do end up with pretty big main files, but all it does is set up dependencies. Like I understand what Chris is saying. You probably should be doing some testing outside of like as the application as a whole, but I think just keeping the main small probably does encourage better testable code, even if it leaves out some other pieces. It's like, we shouldn't not do it because it doesn't solve the complete the problem completely. Like, it gets us part of the way there. Right. I might counterpoint that for a second. <laughs> Please do. Now we're having fun. I mean, I, I see this argument all the time of like the, it gets us a step in the right direction. But I really do like a lot of the code bases I've seen that enact this skinny main thing do really just forget about, you know, setting up proper configuration, having configuration be sane, having the bootstrapping code look good, having a, an actual application kernel. Like these are the things that we actually want at the end of the day. Like we want the structure of how our applications boot up to be really nice. But instead, what I feel like we got is, okay, well, now everybody just shoves all of the gross code they were putting in main into this other function that is effectively the same thing, except now you can return an error from it and skipping out on all of that good stuff that we actually want. So I feel like it's a distraction. And when you have to go back and actually sit there with that main function and perhaps not be able to test it with just unit tests and have to test it in like a real way, that forces you to have to do things in a, in a way that you wouldn't otherwise. It's one of those sneaky things that's like, well, this feels like progress, but it's actually progress leading you to like a dead end in the maze. So like, unless we're going to try and scale the walls of the, the labyrinth, like we got to turn around and like figure out a different path forward. <laughs> Love the analogy. I'll give you that, that it does provide kind of a, a, a way out and can let us not do things we should be doing. So I'll give you that one. Right. Some of it's like, uh, you know, that old saying about laws, like they keep the honest people honest. Some of it's like, these idioms or these patterns will keep the people who are going to do good tests doing good tests, but like the one who wasn't going to anyway, whether they shove it all in main or put it into a different function immediately, it's not going to change who they are or the way they code. You know, it's like some of it's, I can see that where it's like, this is a good pattern, but it forces, it helps you do this thing that the problem is we're not doing that thing anyways. It's like it doesn't fix that particular problem. I would actually say there too, that's kind of what differentiates what I would consider an idiom in Go from just like a practice that people are trying to make or best practice. I feel like most of the idioms, really all of the idioms we have are these deeply nuanced things that like sometimes we can give like a little quick, like like the Go Proverbs, which I think are great, where it's like this little quick sentence. But if you actually start pulling it apart, it gets more and more complex. And there's just more and more uh, pieces that you want to pull apart to get a good understanding of it. And I think that when you have things like just have a skinny main to make it more testable and it ends there, it's like, well, where's the depth to that? How do I keep going? How when I encounter something where this doesn't fit properly, that the idiom still works, like it doesn't have that same amount of teeth to it or that depth to it. Um, whereas I think a lot of the other idioms do wind up having that depth to them. Mm. So if I wanted to learn a bunch of Go idioms, would, would you suggest reading Go Proverbs? Would that be the suggestion? Yeah, yeah, I think Go Proverbs still apply. I think some people think that they're they're dated, but I think that they are pretty good. I think also like code review comments, which is this thing that's in the Go GitHub wiki, is actually pretty good. And those, those are also pretty much like idioms-ish. There's some idioms sprinkled throughout there. But I think those are two good sources for, for idioms of the language. Nice. The Go proverbs were actually something that kind of drew me into Go. Like the first time I read all of those, I was like, oh, wow, these all make a lot of sense. And they, I don't think they're dated. They resonated with you. Yeah, definitely. Okay. So there's a good litmus test, perhaps, for the Go curious. If you're wondering if Go would speak your language or it'd speak to you, 
is go read the Go Proverbs and see if you agree or if they're saying things that you think make sense or maybe it's unpalatable for you, then maybe look elsewhere. So that's good advice. Let's talk about web apps. This question actually came in from Twitter. Is Go and the ecosystem in a place where it can compete with Rails slash Laravel slash Django for dynamic websites? I don't think so. <laughs> okay, honesty. I mean, that's a style of development that I don't think Go is like particularly suited for, those big like monolithic like server-side rendered apps. I'm just not sure it makes sense in the frame of Go. What is it about the language or the ecosystem that makes you say that? Is it the strong typing or the lack of the fact that they're dealing with about that dynamic user-generated content? Or, or what is it? I think it's a lot like the distrust of magic. If you think about like Rails or something like that, or Wire, what's, is that the new Rails like dynamic front-end bit? Hot Wire? Yeah, Hot Wire. All of that just does things, and you have no idea what it's doing. <laughs> and I think that's not tolerated well in Go, in the Go community. So let me translate that and see if I'm, I'm picking up what you're saying here. Because dynamic web apps that have a lot of user-generated content or input Building those at scale, I don't mean scale of like users, but like breadth of surface area, lots of forms, lots of pages, lots of what have yous, requires from a framework perhaps a lot of either code generation or reflection-based stuff to make you not have to write a bunch of code yourself every time you wire up a form and go, it's not against the code gen, at least it seems like, but it's against the metaprogramming stuff that Rails and these other ones use in order to cut down on your scaffolding and your coding. Is that kind of what you're saying, or did I just say a bunch of stuff that you didn't say? No, that is what I'm saying. Okay. As you say it back, I'm not totally sure I agree with what I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> that was kind of the purpose of the practice, to see if we were... I think there is something in the Go community that does dislike the idea of these big frameworks, these big things, and... I'm not sure if it's reasonable. Like a one, a full service framework. Yeah, I'm not sure it's reasonable, but it does exist. Okay. I don't think we can deny like the skepticism of that exists. Okay. I feel like we're comparing uh, apples to oranges a little bit because it's like, you know, Ruby, Django, these are not languages, right? The language there is Ruby, Python, whatever. I think Go is a good language for building these things if you actually have the time and patience to like ramp up and actually build it yourself, right? Like, I think if if you just want the experience of, like, what Rails gives you and have this out of the box, boom, I can get off to the races, build my stuff, and then I'm done, I can move on, mm-hmm. then no, Go isn't going to be good for that. But if you're actually trying to either build something so you can actually understand how these things get put together, right. or if you're, like, a bigger organization that, like, has the engineering capacity to own something like this, then I think it can actually be very good. Because I think like yeah. you have the knowledge of how the thing works and you wind up having a lot less code that you depend on that you don't own at the end of the day. So I think like the main argument against using Go for these types of things is like, oh, well, the the getting started period is much longer because you have to build more of the stuff yourself. Right. And I think that's kind of where I get like a little annoyed with that argument because I personally do not think that that's how we should look at software engineering. I'm, I'm very annoyed that we continually look at things as the how fast can you get going from the beginning and not how do you actually build something you can maintain over the long run? Because that, that's obviously what's more important. Not like, I just built something today, but like, oh, three years, four years down the road, this thing is still something that we want to use, we want to add to, we can extend and all of that. I agree with you most of the time. Sometimes you do want to just build fast and, and to test your business idea and not your software system, right? So to test an idea quickly, that's why I think Rails was so popular in startup land was because it was like, we don't even know if this business is going to be here in six months. So why do I have to build an architect system that's going to last a decade if my business isn't going to last six months? Now, the idea there, I think, is like once you establish, you know, you get your product market fit or whatever the startup guys say, then it's like, okay, let's re-architect this sucker now in like the ways that Chris would build it. And like, let's build it to last and I think a lot of times that never happens because the business is taking off and you're just trying to keep the servers up or whatever happens. And that step, you know, prototypes are supposed to be thrown away and we never do. We just turn them into yeah. businesses. So I definitely understand that. What I'm trying to get at, I, I have never quite understood, is the lack of a Rails or a Django coming out of the Go community because Gophers don't like that, just speaking very broadly, 
or is it because Go as a language isn't well suited for that? And I don't know the answer to that. I think it's because there's not a there's not a need. Rails exists, Django exists, sure. PHP, uh, like Drupal and Symfony, and we're, all of these things already exist, and they have large communities and large support around them. So, in order for something like that to exist inside of Go, like we have to like invest a lot of community energy and time into rebuilding all of that, into gaining all of that to get a very small portion of a pie at the end of the day. Uh-huh. And so I think that people that are very comfortable with those sorts of things want to do that. And I, I think Go as a language really does attract people that want to do this kind of lower level or not, different type of work at the end of the day. Like when I think people that want to go explore Go, they're already onto the world of single page web applications and APIs and they don't want these kind of big monolithic stacks as much anymore. So I think it's like, by nature of what Go is really good at and by how crowded the field actually is, I think by the time you get to the point of thinking about using Go, you already have a different problem that you're trying to solve than what you would solve with Rails or with Django or with Drupal or with any of these other things. Well said. Ian, anything to add? No. You're nodding along in agreement. I think that covers it. Like, yeah. The idea that those already exist, like, yeah, why would, why would we build another one for a 1% market share? Yeah. Right. Maybe because you want a web app, but you love Go. But I guess in that case, then you're going, you're going to hand roll a bunch of stuff like Chris talked about, and you're going to pick each library out, and you're going to build up a thing, which you can do in these other systems. I mean, Sinatra is a thing inside the Ruby land. It's very much has more of a Go philosophy. So it's not like you can't. One of the follow-up questions to that is, does Go do websites? And I was like, well, of course you can do websites, right, with Go. It's just uh, you have to build all the parts of your website. I mean, there's templating engines and stuff like that, but and routers, there's all sorts of things. I think that's one of the things that actually makes Go quite good. I mean, given I did just say all of that, I think that like if there was a reason for us to build something like a Rails in Go, I think it could be like incredibly interesting because we do have a lot of stuff built into the standard library that like gets you halfway there. Yeah, totally. We have a database library that's built in language. We have a templating, a good templating system that actually properly escapes HTML and JavaScript and those sorts of things right in the built into the language itself. So I think the pieces are all there for it. Yeah. But I just think like the the appetite there hasn't been someone that yeah that that wants to go put the effort into to building that sort of thing. So Mike Dotson in the chat is expanding on what Chris said. He says, you end up using one of the frameworks and quickly run into issues and find it's actually as easy to write your own versus learning a third-party framework. I think we've all been there, especially the more magic that pours on. Yeah. The harder it is to understand what's going on under the hood. I think this is why a lot of the early API frameworks that existed in Go, because that was something that was big for a while with Martini and a bunch of these other ones, they mm-hmm. died out for a large part. And I think it's exactly because of that, because you realize pretty quickly, it's just like, I have 50,000 or 100,000 lines of dependency that I just do not need. So I can just go write this myself. Well, having a batteries included standard library is a huge asset to any any language and ecosystem. So well put. All right, getting close on time. Let's ask, I got a couple other questions here. So look on the other side of the fence, you know, wanderlust. Do you guys have ever any wanderlust in Go? Do you have any features in other languages that you're jealous of? So as full-time gophers, look over there and see what they're doing in Rust land or Elixir land or TypeScript land and think, oh, I would, I would want that, but I don't have it. Through the years, I've run into some things that like don't have great support in Go. Like, uh, I don't know if you ever worked with SOAP, like, XML. Try not to. Yeah. If you try to do that and go, you're just going to have a bad time. And I would like to be able to like stay in the language I like and build services that interact with those, but right. I won't. I've tried it and I, I'm just, I refuse. We'll, we'll use something else for SOAP communication. Yeah. Okay. What do you usually switch to? C sharp. Okay. Yeah. So I guess the XML support in general is not the best. Okay. Chris? You know, I, don't, I think a lot of things that I want in Go are things that also don't exist in other languages. Ah, um, you're a dreamer. Like, I want better APIs, like API building tools. Like, I want to be able to build hypermedia APIs much e- more easily. But, like, I don't think there are any languages that have particularly good tooling for that right now. Mm. Same thing with, like, database access. Like, I want better ways of interacting and manipulating data. But once again, I don't think there are any languages that really do that well. You want the ability to build your own DSLs? Or, or what do you mean by like better? Like, let's take the hypermedia one. Well, let's take the database one because more people are probably familiar with databases. Like When you say access to database better, 
to me, that's like, I don't know what better looks like unless you tell me, draw, draw me a picture. There was this talk that one of the pre, I think he was one of the previous Go team members gave on like how great SQLite is and how like that's kind of the only database you need. And I like, that's the the direction that I would like things to go. Like I want my data to like just be there, but also be distributed and also have, I don't want to have to worry about how my data is stored on disk. I just want to be able to access it and manipulate it how I want in my language. I don't want to be writing lots of strings. Like I think like part of my gripe here is with SQL as a whole that I just, I don't like the model of that for interacting with data. Okay. And like everything is built on top of it, which is why I don't think any languages have good solutions to this. So I'd like to see something like that get better. And I think like the way Go is structured, this is something we could do. Like we do have this rather unique way of doing code generation where you generate code not at the time of the, like you get it from like, a dependency, but when you actually build it to deploy it. I think that gives you some unique aspects of how you could actually use code generation. So you, you kind of, generate things much earlier in the pipeline and the way that it all works in Go is like a bit closer to being able to do something like, you know, take something like a DSL or something closer to a DSL and like pre-compile it in your application before it kind of gets sent out. So I think there's like interesting things around all of that. But once again, it's just like the paradigm of how the industry works is like we all want our applications to be stateless. So we're all shipping data out, we're like communicating with something else that holds all of the data at the end of the day. Mm. So it's like stuff like that that I like to see more of and have like see more interesting ways of doing it. But I don't know of any languages that are really or any mainstream languages that are like have those features. And of course, I think package management is something that I would like to see be good. And I don't think any language has done it well as of yet. I think people have done it like okay. Like I think even after all the dust settles, modules are like okay. But then you hit those edge cases, and it's like it, it's like going through hell because it's just real rough. Yeah. So I'd like to see that be better. But once again, don't know any other languages that have that better. Yeah, I've heard speak people speak highly of Rust's crate system, but I don't know what sets it apart from others or anything about it. So I don't know if that's just people speaking highly because that's what they do, or if they've actually cracked some sort of nut over there in the Rust ecosystem that makes it particularly better than some of the other ones out there. Okay, so like some of the things that I see in other languages where I'm like, if I was to use Go, I might miss this, is like, I like the idea that like four is the only way to loop, but like I also love all of like the FP fat, you know, functions for like iteration and map and reduce and select and filter. And for me, those are very productive ways of pipelining data. And I'm wondering, maybe those are available as like libraries or anything, but like, it seems like I would miss those things. Do you guys ever miss those things? I'm sure you're familiar with them in other languages. I miss iteration, like iterators all the time. I find myself building them a lot. And that's one of the, with generics, I'm hoping that we do kind of settle on a reasonable like iteration, maybe not interface, but yeah, way of doing it. But yeah, I do miss that. Okay. I think I miss that too, but I think I've also just hand-rolled it enough times that I'm just like, nah, I can just write it myself, so whatever. Do you have your own little utilities package that you carry around, or do you just like code it up each time? In nah, I just code it up each time for what I need. Nice. I don't know, once you design a database driver that you have to do this, have to design, you spend a lot of time thinking about how to design an iterator really well, and then it just like sticks in your head forever. Gotcha. I did see a package recently that was trying to recreate JavaScript's Lodash, which is a lot of functional facilities for JavaScript with Go's generics. It was like a very fresh project when generics ship. So I don't know if it's any good or anything about it, except for like, I think people are going to start working on that particular problem. Last one, and then we'll get to, we'll get to wrapping up here. How long did it take you to get over if error not equal nil being all over the place? I never hated it. Yeah, I don't think it's ever bothered me. I like it. Never. I like it. You like it? I hate try catch. You always liked it? I did. Like the first first time you saw it, you're like, this is it. This makes sense. Okay. I've always hated try catch because it's just so disconnected from where your error happens. You know, you, you could catch something twelve nested levels deep and just have no idea what's going on. So like the idea that you just have to handle errors right where they happen, like I just immediately thought, like, oh yeah, this is how it should be done. I think for me, it's partly how I learned Go. I spent, like, I didn't learn it trying to, like, change some project from some other language into Go. I just, like, learned Go to learn Go. So I absorbed a lot of, like, Rob Pike's talks on things. Mm-hmm. And just, like, the idea that, no, 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 like, errors aren't special. They're just other values. They have, like, semantically different meaning, but they're not 
actually different from anything else fundamentally changed the way that I structured my code. And I started to see like a lot of, if you keep writing, if error does not equal nil a lot, you've done something terribly wrong in your application and you need to go back and, and redesign that code because that code is wrong. And I think once I saw that and once I started kind of leaning into that as a signal that I should be getting from it, I wound up like rewriting code and having it wind up be a lot better. So while like sometimes it's annoying when you're like prototyping and just trying to get something done, you just write it a bunch of times, it's annoying. I think it actually winds up making my code much better. So I don't find it to be, I haven't found it to be something that I don't like. Mm. So mostly what I see is, and like I said, I've written like 200 lines ago. So most of it's what I've read, okay? Which is probably still like in the less than a thousand lines and then like on uh, the Go website and stuff. Most of it's like if error not equal to nil, return error. Isn't that what most people do most of the time? Yeah, most people are doing it wrong. Yeah. I was going to say, isn't that not actually handling anything? Aren't you just passing it up? That's what I don't get. I think that's where a lot of the confusion from a couple years back came from of like, no, you're actually supposed to like handle your errors. You're supposed to like do something, think about what the problem is. And, and yeah, if you're not doing anything, it's like keeping the honest people honest. Like, you got to handle it right here. It's like, are you though? I think like you're just like text expanding that same snippet. I feel like a lot of the people that don't like if error does not equal nil, don't like it because every time they're writing, if error does not equal nil, return error. And like, that's the only iteration of it that they see. And it's like, well, that's incorrect. So you're using the thing wrong. You're not really getting the feedback you should get from it. So that's hopeful. Mostly that's what I've seen. I've always thought like, this seems silly, but that's not because it's just doing it wrong. A lot of times you do end up returning an error, but like in those, you should be adding context. You should be checking certain error cases that you can handle. But a lot of times you do pass up the error for someone else to decide if they're broken or not. Because that's what you'd do if it was like a runtime error, right? Like it would just pass itself up until Mm -hmm. the runtime explodes. And I think too, it's fine if you're doing that for like just one thing. I think what people get frustrated by is when you have like 100 lines of code and like 80 of them are just if error does not equal no return error. Like you have a high proportion of it. But once again, I think that's like got to go back and structure your code a little bit differently, be a little bit more creative in what you're doing, and then you kind of reduce the number of that actual statement down to a handful. Mm. Well said. Okay, so this has given me new interest in that particular thing that has bothered me. Is like, you know what? doesn't have to be that way. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Retool. Retool is the low-code platform for developers to build internal tools. Some of the best teams out there trust Retool. Brex, Coinbase, Plaid, DoorDash, Legal Genius, Amazon, Allbirds, Peloton, and so many more. The developers at these teams trust Retool as the platform to build their internal tools, and that means you can too. It's free to try, so head to retool.com changelog. Again, retool.com slash changelog. And by SignalWire. SignalWire offers APIs, SDKs, and edge networks around the world for building the realest real-time video and video communication apps with less than 50 milliseconds of latency. They use WebSockets to deliver 300% lower latency than APIs built on REST, making it ideal for apps where every millisecond and responsiveness makes a difference, like apps that need instant natural language understanding, real-time machine vision, or large-scale video and audio conferencing. Here's what makes them different. They use MCU, multi-point control unit that mixes all video and all audio feeds on the server side and then distributes a single unified stream back to every participant. That way, every participant in the apps you ship experience the same video and the same audio. Your apps have none of the awkward audio effects, obvious lag, and jumpy video. It's all smooth, great UX, creating a more lifelike virtual experience without compromising audio or the video quality. Head to signalwire.com slash video mention go time to receive an extra 5,000 video minutes. Again, go to signalwire.com slash video and remember to mention go time. Well, Ian, you are our guest today. So if you have an unpopular opinion, we would love for you to share it now. I've been trying to think of one. I really have. I'm drawing a blank. Okay. 
unacceptable. You shall say something. No, <laughs> totally cool. It's an optional segment. Chris, you are not hosting today, which means I defer to you. Do you have, um, have you thought of one? I mean, you shared a couple. You got, you got a little spicy there, but what else you got? Oh, there's so many spicy ones in my brain. Like, which do I choose from? <laughs> I mean, my one from last week was so spicy, though. I, I still like, like destroy. I haven't heard it yet because we haven't produced that episode, but I'm excited about it. I don't know. I'll go for one that's going to be incendiary. <laughs> I think it's time for Go to have a fork. Wow. Say more. I feel like it's time to go to have a fork because I feel like the community, we're not all together right now. And I think we're pretending that we are. Like, I, I feel like we have, especially with things like generics, I feel like we've kind of like fractured a little bit and we should have a recognition of that fracturing and then maybe more formal conversations. to like, how do we come back together? How do we come back as a whole? Because I feel like there are different large factions of Go right now. And I feel like us all trying to operate together is not winding up being entirely helpful, like healthy for us as a, as a community. So maybe it's even just a forking of our community. I don't know if we have to fork the actual language, but I feel like there needs to be some sort of like separation of us for a little bit. Where would the dividing line be? Would it be around generics or are there other things? So I feel like there's kind of the way that the language was when I first started learning it, which I guess is like the Rob Pike era of the language where it was like extremely practical of a language. And it was very focused on being like a language for experienced software engineers that is still useful for those people who are newer. And I think over the past few years, the language has pivoted to being one that is more focused on helping newer people be able to do things. So people from other languages feel more comfortable in the language. And I feel like that has come a bit at the expense of people that want to do that fresh new thing, that want to do that. I've spent a decade writing code and thought about it very deeply, and I want that very nuanced and articulated way of doing development. Ian, your response. <sighs> <laughs> Stake your claim right now. I do kind of agree with Chris here that it's changed a bit. I don't know if I would say it's changed and become worse for people that want to experience people that want to write code a particular way. But it does seem to be more almost academic instead of practical, especially like modules and maybe generics as well. It feels more like a, almost like a research project or like, how could we do this? Not should we do this? So yeah, hmm. I don't know if we need a fork, but I do agree that there's been a change somewhere, like a shift in culture or something. I feel like that's a good way of putting it. Like it does feel like it's shifted from a practical to a more academic, more research style thing. And like, I don't know if that has to be like, once again, it's not to be like a, a fork fork. Like we have to have completely separate development teams. But I think that's like, maybe it's like an extended conversation that we have. And maybe there's like different, like different ways we come about deciding things. So I think it has been, it started off as very practical and it shifted to now very academic. And I feel like the language has lost a bit, a little bit of its soul along the way there. Well, while we're here, let's have a forked go naming brainstorming session. All right. So I'm thinking no go. I'm thinking gone, like G O N E. I'm thinking stop or uh, stay. Stay. <laughs> go to. Ooh, go to. No, like G O T O, not joke. All right. Any other potential fork names? We're going to have to ideate this a bit. I mean, you have Og. Og, there you go. Rearrange the letters. You could steal a mascot and just call it Gopher. <laughs> Please don't call it Gopher. <laughs> now you're really, yeah. Like the old networking protocol, Gopher? We could call it Horde, because Gophers are hoarders. So that could be a fun name. I'm glad you put a D at the end of that. <laughs> yes, Horde. <laughs> <laughs> Please enunciate. <laughs> okay, submit your GoFork names in the comments or on the Twitter poll for this particular unpopular opinion. I'm thinking that one's going to be... Oh, God, someone said Go++ or Go Sharp. No. <laughs> Go Sharp. No, 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 no. Go Sharp. Oh, I'm like a... I'm sticking with that one. Yeah, we got Yago, like Yago maybe. From, I'm assuming that's a Lion King reference. All right, let me share my unpopular opinion here. So on episode number 192, Ashley Jeffs had what was, in my opinion, the most brilliant unpop of all times. His opinion was that people who vote in Twitter polls are losers. Did you guys hear that one? He said they should get out more. Nobody cares about their opinion and it doesn't matter. Now, he thought that he'd gained the system. He thought he made a perfectly unpopular opinion because of course we take the votes on Twitter and what are they going to vote? But reality is stranger than fiction. 71% of Twitter poll takers agreed that they were indeed losers. So 
Based on that empirical evidence, I can with confidence state that my unpopular opinion is that people who vote on Twitter polls are winners and they should tweet more. Everybody cares about your opinion and it does matter. <laughs> I feel like that one is going to be unpopular. <laughs> I think it might. I think people are just going to be in spite just voting that. No. Like, yeah, that's unpopular. Just to, yeah. Oh, time will tell. Please follow GoTimeFM on Twitter and vote your opinion. Do you think you're actually a winner or a loser? We will find out on Twitter. That has been our show for this week. I appreciate you all letting me crash the party and ask my newbie slash outsider questions. Hopefully there are other Go Curious folk who learned a thing or two and enjoyed this conversation. Ian, thanks so much for joining us once again. You're welcome back anytime. I'm glad to be here. Chris, you are also here, as Matt Ryer would say. But I'll say thank you for hanging out and sharing your wisdom and your spicy hot takes. Like, go for it. I had never seen that one coming. Yeah. But that's go time for this week. We'll talk to you all next week. Here is a quick unpop results roundup for you. Mark Sandstrom said manually grinding through work is an underrated engineering strategy. Turns out 96% of GoTime Twitter followers agreed. Ed Welch believes Windows is the best desktop OS. That's unpopular. 82% of gophers disagree. And finally, Mahalis Tsukalos thinks C is the best programming language. And no surprise here, 83% of people beg to differ. Follow GoTime FM on Twitter for all the results. And don't forget to subscribe. If you haven't yet, point your favorite web browser to GoTime.fm. Thanks again to Fastly for CDNing for us, to Breakmaster Cylinder for the Farm Fresh Beats, and to you for listening. We appreciate you. Next week, a listener request, Go Code Organization Best Practices. Stay tuned. That's what's coming up next time on GoTime.